Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hey, Behind the Life listeners, we're the University of Miami Rider Trauma Team, and today we're coming to you with a clinical challenge case. My name is Eva Rechiga, a surgery resident, and we also have Uri Neiman, our trauma fellow, and Dr. Rishi Rattan, our trauma critical care attending surgeon. Today's case will be one that manages to confuse and provoke anxiety in many trainees, even at upper levels of training, the pregnant trauma patient. Thanks, Eva. You know, as the trauma surgeon on call, there is always more tension going around when the alert is in for two injured patients arriving at the bay at the same time. Who do I tend to first? What am I missing in the other bay? Who gets priority for exam, for scan, for intervention, for operation? With an injured pregnant patient, we are dealing with two patients, two lives at potential risk. And if the degree of difficulty and level of stress don't seem to bother you just yet, we should, of course, add that one of our patients has expected aberrations in physiology, anatomy, hematology, and coagulation. The other potential patient, well, we can't even evaluate the other patient the way we are trained on a daily basis, for they reside within the first patient's uterus. Yeah, Uri, those are all very true points, and we all can relate to that. Additionally, it should be definitely mentioned that nearly 1 in 10 U.S. pregnancies are affected by trauma. And trauma, unfortunately, is the leading cause of non-obstetric maternal and fetal mortality during pregnancy with an overall 6 to 7% maternal mortality rate. And fetal mortality has been quoted as high as 61% in major trauma and 80% if maternal shock is present. This incidence increases with gestational age, with around half occurring in the third trimester. While motor vehicle collisions comprise nearly half of these traumas, the two next leading causes are falls and assaults, often from intimate partner violence, accounting for nearly a quarter of trauma in pregnancy. Thanks, Eva. And a note here about intimate partner violence before going on. Studies from multiple countries across the globe have reported rates from 1% to as high as 57% during pregnancy. And this abuse is associated with increased rates of spontaneous abortion, neonatal intensive care unit admission, preterm labor, and low birth weight. Additionally, for the mother, it has been strongly associated with peripartum depression. It is very important to screen any woman presenting with trauma for intimate partner violence, depression, and suicide risk. Given its prevalence and its significant effect on morbidity and mortality for both mom and the fetus, it's very important to any emergency provider to understand the physiologic diagnostic, and management considerations that differ when it comes to treating the pregnant trauma patient at all stages of pregnancy. So today we will run through a case that will help us do just that. So let's get right to it. All right. So we're called in the trauma bay to evaluate a 30-year-old female in her first pregnancy, or G1P0 as we are used to call it. She's at 32 weeks gestation, and she was restrained front seat passenger in a high-speed motor vehicle collision. First up, what anatomical considerations should we make given the gestational age? First of all, we would want to consider this a viable fetus because it's more than 20 weeks, so that will affect some of our workup and treatment, but more on that later. Fundal height in the first trimester, the fetus is still well protected within the pelvis and the uterus still has a thick wall generally until around 12 weeks. As you move through gestational age, the fundal height passes the pelvis while the wall of the uterus begins to thin. 
Rules of thumb are that the uterus will reach the pubis by 10 weeks of gestation, will be palpable after that, and it'll reach the umbilicus around 20 weeks. At 30 to 32 weeks, pregnant fundal height should be palpated about halfway between the umbilicus and the xiphoid, and by 34 weeks, it reaches the costal margin. This means the fetus is more exposed as you advance in gestational age. Eva, yeah, that's a great point. It's important to remember this affects the kind of injuries to expect in a pregnant patient and what to look out for, particularly when it comes to wearing seatbelts. Misuse of seatbelt is a preventable cause of maternal morbidity and mortality. All pregnant patients should be educated about the proper use of seatbelts, low part below the uterus and the upper part between the breasts. The greatest modifiable risk factor for adverse outcomes in pregnant women involved in motor vehicle crashes is improper seatbelt use. The biggest concern for injury lies in the strain on the uterus from, the, from an MVC, particularly in more advanced gestational age when the uterus is more exposed, which can lead to placental abruption from the strain of the initial force leading to forward displacement and to the countercoup injury afterward. They both increase intra-abdominal pressure, which can cause placental shearing. Okay, back to our case. So the patient arrives via ambulance to the trauma bay. The heart rate is 124. The blood pressure is 98 over 65. Respiratory rate is 25, approximately. And she's setting 94% on room air. GCS is 15. So, uh, Eva, what can you tell me? What do you think about those vital signs? Well, our patient is in our third trimester. In the first two trimesters, you would usually expect relatively similar vitals to a non-pregnant patient. But in the third trimester, it's usually normal to have mild relative tachycardia, mild relative tachypnea, and mild relative hypotension. However, in this case, she's a little more tachycardic than you would consider normal in a pregnant woman because their heart rate usually doesn't increase higher than the low hundreds to max one teens. The blood pressure is on the lower side, but could be considered normal in a pregnant patient. And you would usually consider abnormal less than 90 systolic. She's also a little more tachypnic than you would consider normal, which should usually just be at the upper limit of normal for a pregnant patient. We're going to include two articles in our show notes, actually, that dive more into the vital signs reference ranges for pregnant women, so you can check that out later. Regarding those vitals, another consideration related to physiologic changes in pregnancy is that as pregnancy progresses, the plasma volume expands up to almost 150% of the pre-gravid levels. There's also an increase in RBC volume that exists, but not to the same extent. And hence, we got the familiar term of anemia of pregnancy with a hemoglobin level of around 12 or a crit of around 36%, which is considered normal values for a pregnant patient. So this volume expansion is in preparation for an expected blood loss during labor. But a bleeding pregnant trauma patient may withstand losing up to 30% of circulating volume before changes in her heart rate and blood pressure are seen. This means that the true degree of blood loss in a pregnant patient with those vital signs we just mentioned could be more severe than that of a non-pregnant patient with the same aberrations of vital signs. Now, transfusing blood products would hence necessitate a larger than expected volume compared to a non-pregnant injured patient before achieving what we call response in vital signs measurement. Okay, so you have a tachycardic, tachypneic patient rolling into the trauma bay. You know that she's pregnant, you know that it's abnormal, but what do we want to do next? Well, there are many things to consider. 
but the one primary principle in treating tra pregnant trauma patients is that we need to treat the mother as best as we can, as that will provide both her and the fetus the best chances to survive. This can be summarized with sick mom, sick baby. Therefore, we want to do the same thing we would do for any trauma patient, which is our primary survey. Of course, we also want to be getting our two large bore IVs, sending lab work, which in a second or third trimester woman should include a Kleinhauer Betke test, which would detect fetal blood and maternal circulation and let us know if an RH negative mother will need a Rogam treatment or not. We also want to get our patient in the left lateral decubitus position just by about 10 or 15 degrees uh, to offset the uterus's compression of the IVC. This is most easily accomplished if the patient is on a backboard, then what you can do is either make sure that the cervical collar is still in place or have someone stabilize the cervical spine. And then with a couple of assistants, tilt the backboard and place a rolled up sheet underneath it. If you have any problems tilting the patient to offload the IVC, manual displacement of the uterus to the left side of the abdomen can also help. Once the primary survey is complete, we also want to get fetal heart tone monitoring on our patient as well. And this can be done actually with the ultrasound when you're doing your fast as an adjunct to the primary survey. This should be done as soon as possible, but without delaying treatment or workup of the mother. Fetal heart tone can be considered a canary in the coal mine for the mother, and so an extra adjunct to the primary survey. While it certainly tells us about the fetus, it can be actually the first sign of maternal distress. Heart rates less than 110 or greater than 160 on your fetal heart tones would be considered concerning. Today's episode is sponsored by locumstory.com. All right. On exam, the patient's airway is patent. She's able to speak to you clearly, and she's in a C collar. She has decreased breath sounds on the right with tenderness over the chest wall. Her SATs are decreasing to around 90, 88, and she has no obvious outward signs of bleeding with a palpable radial pulses bilaterally. What's up next? Okay, great. So mom's airway seems patent. Important considerations for airway in a pregnant trauma patient are that they have up to four times higher failure rate of endotracheal intubation. Moreover, the risk for aspiration during bag valve mask ventilation is higher compared to non-pregnant patients. This is both due to anatomic reasons, due to compressed organs beyond the uterus in the abdomen, as well as hormonal changes along the progesterone axis. Therefore, an early decision on the necessity of endotracheal intubation and its performance by an experienced caregiver is important. In terms of breathing, it appears that she likely has a pneumothorax with rib fractures on the right, so we would want a chest tube inserted. It's important to know that an enlarged uterus, as I mentioned, pushes up the abdominal organs superiorly, including the diaphragm. Therefore, when a chest tube is needed in the pregnant patient, especially in advanced gestational age, you may want to go up higher by one or even sometimes two rib spaces above the usual fifth intercostal space so you avoid abdominal placement and injury. Tapping out the chest wall if it's quiet enough or doing an ultrasound or chest x-ray may help you, though again, Imaging should not come before placement of a chest tube if you've already identified the chance for pneumothorax on primary survey. 
Are there any adjuncts to the primary survey to consider with a pregnant patient? Absolutely. Again, and I feel like we'll say this multiple times today, we should never delay or alter our mom's treatment due to fears of adverse effects on the fetus. What's best for mom is what's best for the fetus. So we'll still want our chest X-ray, our pelvic X-ray, and our EFAST. Fetal mortality has been found to be elevated with any pelvic fracture in mom, so we would definitely want to get that X-ray. FAST has been found to be comparable in terms of sensitivity and specificity in pregnant women, just as in the non-pregnant patient. The normal amount of free physiologic fluid that's found in pregnant women is usually too small to be detected on FAST. Therefore, all free fluid is pathological if you see it on FAST, even in a pregnant patient. If we don't have them yet, we would also want our fetal heart tones at this time to start that monitoring as soon as possible. Okay, so we get our x-ray, which shows suspected right-sided pneumothorax and also multiple rib fractures. The pelvic x-ray shows no fractures. Fast is, I don't know, equivocal, maybe some fluid around the liver. We put the uh, fetal monitor and the heart rate is in the 140s. Okay, so at this point, we would place a right chest tube, again, aiming for one to two spaces above the fifth intercostal space to avoid abdominal placement, given the displaced diaphragm. Suiva. You place your chest tube, you get a rush of air, about 100 cc of blood. SAT is improving. It's 97 now. Tachypnea improves a bit. It's around 20 now. No other changes to the vitals. The patient continues to be tachycardic around 120. Blood pressure is in the 90s. And again, this heart rate is still elevated, even for a third trimester patient. And although the blood pressure could be considered normal at this stage, we still treat it as borderline at best. We repeat our chest x-ray, and it shows good position of the tube. We complete the secondary survey, which is significant for a gravid uterus with a fundal height of around 35 centimeters. There's a seatbelt sign below the uterus with some tenderness over the area. The patient otherwise has small lacerations over her bilateral upper extremities. And as uh, we mentioned before, no other signs of uh, bleeding nor other injuries. How do we go on from here? Okay, so it looks like she continues to be tachycardic. So I would give her a unit of O negative blood. I would also want a pelvic exam to search for any signs of bulging membranes, vaginal bleeding, or ruptured membranes as part of my secondary survey. If we have any concerns for abruption, we should also get a tachometer for monitoring of uterine contractions. Further monitoring and evaluation should take place if there are any uterine contractions, non-reassuring fetal heart tones, vaginal bleeding, uterine tenderness, rupture of membranes, or serious maternal injury being present. It's important to note for the trauma surgeon who would be doing a pelvic exam on a pregnant patient in the trauma bay, this is not uh, a formal bimanual pelvic, but you really just want to very gently check the vaginal canal for bleeding or copious free fluid. In terms of bulging membranes, or if there's high concern for ruptured membranes, for example, you have a patient who's GCS 15 and and tells you that her water broke, um, that's probably safe and better to leave to an OB-GYN who will perform a, a formal procedure with a sterile glove to reduce the chances of chorioamnionitis. Okay, on pelvic exam, there is no signs of bleeding. The patient is responding to the unit of blood. Blood pressure is now 105 over 65, and heart rate is down to 110. And now, the question of the year. Do we continue with further imaging? The short answer is yes. Whatever is best for mom 
is best for the fetus at all stages of the trauma workup. The benefits of diagnostic imaging in a pregnant trauma patient outweigh the theoretical risk of radiation exposure to the fetus. Doses of radiation delivered with a CT abdomen pelvis are not associated with increased risk of fetal anomalies or pregnancy loss. Whenever possible, the gravid uterus should still be shielded when not directly being studied, for example, during a chest x-ray. Regarding future cancer risk, there is a non-zero but virtually negligible increase in absolute risk over a lifetime. Further, modern CT machines have exposure control interventions that significantly reduce the risk by an order of magnitude. And while radiation exposure must be considered, especially if further imaging or possible IR procedures will be needed, clinically indicated imaging should never be withheld. Deviating from protocols in order to quote-unquote save or reduce radiation exposure could both delay an important diagnosis or achieve equivocal diagnosis, which may even mandate repeat imaging and a larger radiation dose in the end. And remember that even a single missed injury to mom by foregoing necessary imaging can increase the morbidity and mortality both to her and the fetus. In addition, CT can aid in the diagnosis of placental abruption. All patients who require delivery for non-reassuring fetal heart tones have CT evidence of placental abruption. However, it's important to note that in less than half of CT dictations was this actually mentioned. What this means is that trauma surgeons have to be cautious, self-sufficient, and also be able to have a conversation with radiology, specifically asking them to look for placental abruption on CT. These will allow us to identify these injuries when reading our trauma pan scans. This is yet another reason why CT should not be forgotten in the pregnant trauma patient. Back to our case then, and I'm glad to say that we decided we are taking the patient for the scan, and that's the best thing for our mom, which is also the best option for our fetus. And here, we're actually going to have a few branch points to which we're going to respond in different ways. And let's go over the management of different options from here on out. Ava, why don't you start with the first scenario where we're back from the CAT scan, our pregnant patient remains stable, and there are no other injuries on the scan. What should we do next? Right. So in this scenario, since mom has a chest tube, we would still be admitting her for monitoring. Uh, In cases where mom has no other injuries and she remains stable, we would still want to have her monitored for the well-being of the fetus. In fact, all pregnant women greater than 20 weeks who have a trauma should undergo cardiotocographic monitoring for a minimum of two to four hours, which is what's recommended by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Fetal heart tones and tocal monitoring can be stopped after four hours as long as contractions occur in intervals of greater than 10 minutes the fetal heart tones are reassuring, and mom has no other signs of abruption like vaginal bleeding or abdominal pain. So in another case, Uri, let's say we're getting ready to take mom to CT scan, but her heart rate now jumps to the 130s, her blood pressure is now in the 80s, and she's no longer responding to blood products. Pupils are still reactive, and her abdominal exam is now significant for peritonitis. What would you want to do now? So this is a description of hemorrhagic shock, which is not responding to blood products. And with the diffuse peritonitis, it seems that the origin is abdominal hemorrhage. If not already performed, I'll verify with FAST that there is suspicious hemoperitoneum. And in such a case, I would have taken a non-pregnant patient to the OR, which means that our pregnant patient is heading the same way. We are going to perform an exploratory laparotomy for bleeding control. While the pregnant uterus can be gently manipulated if necessary, and the cesarean delivery is not immediately indicated as long as we're able to control the hemorrhage, we can find ourselves delivering in a matter of seconds. Therefore, 
the multidisciplinary team should also include a neonatologist in standby, just in case we will deliver the fetus. So that's a second scenario. And let's go for another one. Let's say the mom was stable after initial blood products were transfused, and we were able to get her to the CT scanner. And now the imaging is back, and it's significant for a grade four liver lack with arterial blush. What do we want to consider for our patient at this time? Let's just say that she subsequently requires another unit of blood after going back from the CT scanner. Right. So I wouldn't deviate from my usual management considerations, and I would do for her what I would do for any other trauma patient with blush on CT, which is IR for embolization. We could discuss with the interventional radiology team the ability to minimize radiation as much as possible, given the fact that she's pregnant during the procedure, as well as try to shield the uterus whenever available. However, I still would definitely want embolization, and I would not forgo IR just because she's pregnant. One more time for the people in the back. What is best for mom is still best for the fetus, and we'll say it multiple times today. Pregnancy should never lead to undertreatment of mom. Thanks, Eva. Now just a half scenario. Let's say our patient is stable, but on secondary survey, we notice there's vaginal bleeding. And to be honest, this is exactly where I'm getting anxious because my obstetric emergencies expertise is just not where I want it to be. I know we should rule out placenta previa, abruption, and you know, maybe you need for C-section. So what exactly are we supposed to do? I guess what we have to do is stick to the leaning principle that remains favoring the mother. As long as she's okay, we can explore and diagnose the fetal condition. We can use the help of the OB-GYNs, but if the mom needs to be taken care of, the fetus is second priority, and it will have to wait. A devastating and extreme scenario, which is fortunately very rare, is a perimortem cesarean section. These can be extremely traumatic cases for all involved, and care should be taken both during the case and afterwards during debriefing. Say our pregnant patient during this blunt trauma case arrests. Perimortem C-section is an option, though it should be underlined that the primary aim here is to save the mother's life. Again, even in this scenario, it's sick mom, sick baby. This can be life-saving for both mom and fetus. Return of spontaneous circulation should be attempted with cardiopulmonary resuscitation for at least about four minutes. However, if you have not achieved spontaneous circulation in the mother by four minutes, an expedient perimortem C-section should be accomplished, ideally taking 60 seconds or less. Totally acknowledging that uh, the average trauma surgeon, in the U.S. at least, is not super comfortable doing a C-section. The fastest way uh, to get the infant out and stop bleeding in the mom and improve the survival of both would be a vertical midline laparotomy, and then you can do a vertical classical uterine incision and, you know, get the baby and placenta out as quickly as possible. And then as a temporizing measure, you can uh, pack the uterus and manually compress for hemorrhage control while resuscitative efforts continue and hope that OB-GYN is just a few steps away at this point. All right, everyone. I think this was a great challenge case with branch points that hit many of the topics that often lead to confusion for the surgical trainee like myself. We went over a lot of information, so we're just going to give our quick hits to make sure we summarize the most important issues. So number one, first and foremost, sick mom comes before sick baby. You have to stick to your basics and treat mom like any other trauma patient. This would lead to best outcomes for both mom and for baby. 
Number two, MVCs or motor vehicle collisions and falls and assaults are the most common causes of trauma in pregnancy. Seatbelts are extremely important to both survival of mom and baby and should be worn below the pregnant uterus and between the breasts. Number three, the pregnant trauma patient should be always screened for intimate partner violence. Number four, despite changes in pregnant patient physiology, they can still present with compensated shock. So always have a high index of suspicion when interpreting vital signs and always offload patient to the left in order to decompress the IVC. Number five, for fetal viability, get the fetal heart rate when mother's condition allows. Remember, fetal distress could be the first sign of maternal hypovolemia. Number six, stick to the basics for radiology. Never withhold indicated imaging just because mom is pregnant. Try shielding the uterus when possible. And number seven, finally, this is probably not going to come as a surprise. Sick mom, sick baby. Treat mom first. Okay, guys, that's our episode on the pregnant trauma patient. We hope that you learned something new and that we were able to shed some light on an often anxiety-provoking topic. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.